Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, some prominent Canadians have asked Prime Minister Trudeau to deal the Huawei CFO for the two Michaels. Is that a good idea? We talked to a local resident about what it was like to grow up in Dundas in a black family. And some elective surgeries have returned to Hamilton Hospitals. All the details coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The commentary today, a noose is a symbol of hate in the black community. A lot of people now reacting to uh, the NASCAR story regarding uh, black driver Bubba Wallace and how uh, the noose or the, the, the rope that was tied in the form of a noose to pull down a garage door had been there a year earlier. Um, so it wasn't there uh, as a direct result of the stance of Bubba Wallace. Uh, so, well, I guess it's okay, then. No problem here. Uh, hardly, hardly. Uh, it proves that there was nothing uh, directed uh, personally at Bubba Wallace if the knot had been there the year before. But does it change the fact that this is still a symbol of pain for the black community? I would suggest no, it doesn't. Uh, But a lot of people are hiding behind that as an excuse today for not having to face the real issue, which is the black community and their ability to have equal rights, the same as the rest of Canada. So, again, you know, I don't think, you know, I heard some reporter interviewing Bubba the other day and said, so is this a hoax? Come on, really? It doesn't alleviate the problem. Not at all. Uh, hopefully the discussion will continue. All right, let's leave it at that. Uh, several uh, former prominent parliamentarians, diplomats, have brought forward a letter to the prime minister saying that the government should release the Huawei CFO in exchange for two Michaels. Here's what the prime minister had to say when asked if he was into trading hostages. I respect the distinguished Canadians who put forward uh, that letter, uh, but I deeply disagree with them. The idea of solving a short-term situation uh, by creating a precedent that demonstrates to China that all they or another country has to do is randomly arrest a handful of Canadians to put political pressure on a government to do what we want, even uh, by going against the independence of our justice system, would endanger the millions of Canadians who live and travel overseas every single year. We cannot allow political pressures or random arrests of Canadian citizens to influence the functioning of our justice system. So I respect these individuals, but they're wrong in their approach. All right, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Uh, he is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Good to be with you, Scott. And guess what? It's going to be shocking. <laughs> Normally, I don't usually agree with the Prime Minister, but I think he's bang on in his response to this letter. I, I think, while well-intended, and I know a few of the people on that list, and I have a great degree of respect for many of them, uh, I think what the Prime Minister is saying is right. It's also echoed, as you probably know, by uh, David Mulroney, who was one of Canada's former ambassadors to China. This isn't the way to go. Uh, we, this has been an option since the very beginning of all of this and was put aside for the reasons that the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister has just stated. Why is this happening now? What is different now? 
Well, I, well, it's longer. Uh, I think they're the emotional appeals that, and who could blame them for making them yeah. that the families of the two Michaels are making are impacting people. Of course they are. Uh, neither of these gentlemen should be going through what they're going through. Um, and I, I think that's having an impact. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, the suspicious part of me wonders if they're, this letter um, maybe is trying to find a way to get some leverage from the United States, because this thing can also all be solved um, if uh, if the Americans decide to drop charges against uh, Men Wong Zhou, which, is, you know, there's no sense that that's going to happen, but I don't know if there's another angle that we don't know about that might be playing here not that uh, donald trump has shown any inclination to Mm -hmm. be moved by what 20 leading canadians think uh and 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 obviously well-respected you know people smart people here why do they see things differently because again even to the average citizen this seems pretty simple if we agree to this then we're setting a terrible precedence where all that China has to do whenever they're upset with us is pluck another Canadian off the street. Why do these people see that differently? Uh, well, look, there are a lot of people on that list uh, who have spent a lot of time in the international arena, and maybe they uh, they believe that this act will uh, somehow, you know, that, that there will be some moral goodness coming from China towards us. Maybe they see view China through a different lens than uh, the, the people that are currently dealing with China now. But I, I was struck by something uh, Mr. Mulroney said last night. Again, he's the, one of the former ambassadors not that long ago. He said China's getting more aggressive than less aggressive. And I, I, he would know better than I. And I think he's right on that from what I can see. So, you know, if, if China takes this exceptionally aggressive posture and Canada says, okay, then what the prime minister said effectively could be right. All right, this worked last time with Canada. Next time we need something from Canada, we'll just snatch another Canadian. Not to simplify it that way, but it could be simplified that way. And I think the, you know, maybe also the authors of the letter are looking at this and saying, look, you know, you 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 have an America you can't trust at the moment, so maybe you can beg forgiveness. That's one of the arguments that may may you know, harking it back to the the. Uh, the original or the second uh, invasion of Iraq that George Bush Jr. was going to make, and Mr. Kretschmer decided not to to send uh, troops. And can we compare Canada those got- two issues here, Tim? Are those can we compare two those two issues, or is this apples to oranges? Well, I think they're trying to compare those issues. I think they're trying to say you have an unpopular American president, and and yeah, the Americans may be angry with you, but they'll get past it. And in the process of that, you'll free two Canadians and you'll be a hero because, of course, no Canadians want the two Michaels to be detained. So that, I think, is part of the argument that they're making. So they're making a comparison, whether it's after or not, Scott, I don't know. Uh, is it possible that these other people who are uh, who have signed this letter to the prime minister have other interests in China? I look. I, I don't know. Maybe uh, some of them. I think probably don't work in China. But the, the, that list again. The names I saw are well-respected Canadians. Mm-hmm. Very few uh, of the things that they have done are, are, are hidden from the public in terms of their public efforts. Um, I don't know if there's all, it's, it's hard, it's such a comprehensive list, because you do have, you know, Ed Broadbent, you do have yep. Derek Bernie, uh, you do have um, Andre Ouellette, uh, all different political players in different times with different parties. 
Um, and you had Louise Arbor before all of that. So it's hard to say that there's some special interest other than, you know, the interest of the lives of these two Canadians and trying to reposition Canada on the global stage that are at play here. Uh, is this a mad on for the Donald Trump administration or perhaps a love in for China or none of? I think it's more, uh, there's a bit of a mad on there. I think, again, they were, look, it's a president, maybe, maybe they're hoping also because it's presidential election season and maybe the tide is turning in the U.S. towards Biden, though, you know, polls say that, but geez, we're only in June, into June, beginning of July, that they think, you know, now's the time you can do this. Who cares if Trump gets mad at you? And Prime Minister, you can turn that into a virtue. But the problem is, from a practical point of view, if your whole argument has been you're going to adhere to the rule of law, when you all of a sudden decide it's not convenient to do so because there's some political opportunism, again, not to take away from the two lives that are at stake here, uh, then why, why are you prepared to take that credibility breach? Um, because I'm guaranteeing you, uh, and I'm not an expert in foreign affairs, but there are lots of nasty players out there. If they see Canada responds to such a high-profile plea to acquiesce uh, to what the Chinese have requested, you can be damn sure it will happen again. Uh, we've certainly heard a lot about the uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's United Front and how they will use, uh, use this group in order to penetrate other systems around the world. Is this the United Front pressuring Canada's elite? Uh, yeah, maybe there's a bit of that, right? I mean, we like to, to be seen to be, and, and we are. We are fair-minded people. We are kind people. We, uh, we, we do like to put humanitarian interests uh, front and center. We like to showcase that. We like to be, you know, we, we, we've always talked about uh, Canada's influence in, in China and uh, uh, the famous Canadian doctor, of course, who was there for years and years and years and treated all the all of the, the different Chinese people. So, yeah, they're playing off of all of that. Of course, yeah, the Chinese are, you know, I'm going to give them a compliment. They're good at yeah. public manipulation and finding ways to do that. That's what they do. So, obviously, this letter came out by a very diverse group, as you have uh, pointed out, very credible group. Does this have weight? Where does this go? How much influence does this letter have? Look, I think it, it, it's doing what it was intended to do. It's getting you, me, and lots of people to talk about it, to build a little bit of pressure. Um, so, you know, maybe it gets put into the discussions at Foreign Affairs around what they do. Uh, and in the prime minister's office around what they do. But, I, you know, the prime minister, as definitive as this one or any prime minister gets, seems to be saying, I can't go down this route. So he's drawn a bit of a line in the sand. Does it open doors in, a, in other places? Uh, maybe. But, um, again, why would Donald Trump look to help Canada here right now unless there was something of a commercial imperative to, uh, to benefit him? How will China be viewing this letter from the, this distinguished group? Oh, they gotta love it. I mean, come on, they have to be delighted that you know we're, we're it's dominating our news agenda. Uh, the people, the signatories, to their credit, are speaking up about the way to go. There's a raging policy debate in Canada uh, about you know is it you know uh, about Kovrig and and Spavro and should they be freed and we can do this, we can do this. Why can't we free them? They put Trudeau in a, a spot where he doesn't like to be, looking like. A, you know, yeah, he's got to be the hard person, but in the course of being the hard person, is he endangering two lives? So Johnny's got to be happy. It's, you know, cat amongst the pigeons, if you will. Does this group realize that this is playing right into the Chinese Communist Party's hands? 
Um, well, there's some exceptionally bright people. I, they probably don't look at it this way. I think the way they framed it is uh, this is a new opening for Canadian policy, and they're saying their argument will be, look, Prime Minister, never mind, disregard what the Chinese are going to say about it, because it doesn't matter what you're going to do. The Chinese are always going to spin things in their own interest. Embrace the opportunity this letter gives you. Lead, take advantage of the public opinion that will come your way if you acted here and freed these these two uh, Canadians, and uh, you'll be seen as a conquering hero. So they're trying to play off of, of that sentiment. And hey, Scott, there is no guarantee, even if Trudeau freed Men Wangzhou, that that, uh, that the, the Michaels would, would be freed. Are you going to trust the Chinese here? Are you? Yeah, I mean, come on. There might be a further lesson to be learned here. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese, you know, in the end, they'd be like, oh, thank you, Mr. Trudeau. By the way, we're still moving with these these charges. So what's Justin Trudeau then going to do? Send the Canadian army over, uh, cut off the PPE supplies that are coming in. I mean, you know, yeah, there's a, the, 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 the writers of the letter do make a bigger point about, all right, where are we going to go with our foreign policy on China? Where can we exercise influence? And if this is a point of influence, again, it's unfortunate that the two Michaels are caught in it. Maybe we have to look at it from a strategically positive perspective. If China really wants Men Wangzhou back this much, how do we make that work? Well, most importantly, getting the two Michaels freed. And it can't be by capitulating to this letter. Yeah, you know, if you are going to bargain, don't, well, you hate to even say this, but you'd think from their standpoint, they feel we have the bigger prize. Is that a negotiating? I don't even want to go down that road. I forget. You're I would throw that. Look, how, how can you argue against the loved ones of, of yeah, the two Michaels, yeah. right? I mean, no, you've seen you're right. the interviews. You can't, right? And no, no. so it puts the prime minister in a terrible place. And, and again, whether it's this prime minister, Stephen Harper, doesn't matter uh, whether you're viewed as empathetic or not. You, you, you know, that, that's a hard place to be in when families come at you and say, you know, or well, they haven't come at the government. The letter has been the vehicle to do that. But when you see the families and you see the human and the real pain, they aren't, you know, just as we describe them. And this is not to demean them. It's just a, simply a term as the two Michaels. They're 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 their loved ones. That's this is awful. Um, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister's tone has obviously changed here. Why now? Um, too little, too late. Uh I, I, maybe, well, nothing's happened, so I guess you can argue it is too little too late, right? But I, I think the hard line against China is where can't, he, I don't think he has much many options at the moment, right? Um, again, if you listen to Mulroney and other China, uh, experts on, on Chinese foreign policy and the way they respond, they seem to respond when you equally are as bellicose and as strong. So uh, maybe that's the right call right now. But again, does it do anything to get both these gentlemen out of prison in China? Is this letter, uh, does it have a 24-hour lifespan? Will we, will we be talking about this next week? Yeah, I suspect there's a few more shoes to drop. I mean, next week is Canada Day, right? So are there going to be patriotic appeals that this group and others try to launch around that time? So I suspect... Um, that could happen. We uh, how is the? Next week. You were talking about the U.S. Uh, uh, earlier, Tim. How are? How would they be reacting to this? Is this even on their radar? I remember talking to uh, Reggie Jacini, our Washington correspondent, and he said this isn't even on the radar for them. Yeah. 
look, <laughs> Donald Trump's going you know, the problems Canada is having with China doesn't matter. I mean, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, I think last week had made some comment about yeah. this, but yeah, this this doesn't register. It's U.S. Um, election season, and uh, Donald Trump uh, has demonstrated that Donald Trump thinks about Donald Trump first, uh, and that that uh, it's nothing more than that, Scott. Now that Justin Trudeau, last question here, now that Justin Trudeau has made this stance and has certainly uh, made it very uh, uh, public and and, uh, and clear what his stand is here, is there any changing this? Is that, all right, let's just move forward? End of story? Well, you know, people always change their mind, but I, I can't imagine after what the Prime Minister said today that there's going to be, uh, at least publicly, any major shift of policy soon. Um, I, I just don't see it. So, yeah, I think we're we're with this for a moment. But does, does it spawn some other action? I mean, I'm sure there are lots of things still going on behind the scenes and where this letter fits in that puzzle. We probably won't know that for a while. Tim Powers is with us, Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated and be well. Thanks, my friend. Take care. Bye. You too. 1252-900-CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. News coming up at the top of the hour. Then shortly after that, we will cover Premier Doug Ford's news conference live. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900-CHML. All right. Over the course of the weekend or just before the weekend, I had a chance to meet a man by the name of Jesse Wolf. And uh, I'm not going to bore you with the details on how we met. It was a business thing. and We started chatting and blah, 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 blah. And uh, Jesse uh, found out or realized what I did for a living, started asking questions, and then the conversation just kind of uh, went on from there. And we started talking about Black Lives Matter and the whole movement and the whole uh, George Floyd uh, tragic death and, and, and such, and it evolved from there. So I thought, we got to have uh, Jesse on the air and have this same discussion that uh, we were fortunate to have uh, before the weekend. Jesse, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Hey, thank you, Scott, for having me here on the show. Uh, and one of the, the main things that Jesse said to me that stuck with me, uh, w- uh, the, the conversation we had was way back when Jesse grew up in Dundas and was one of the very few black families in Dundas way back when, when this happened. So let's talk a little bit about that, Jesse. What was it like being one of the only black families in Dundas growing up? When did you realize you were seeing uh, racism or were at a disadvantage in some way? Well, Scott, uh, when we moved, I was very young kid and it was just my mother and my uh, father and we moved there and we were the only black family in Dundas at the time there was another black family um, close in proximity but we were the only ones and we did face um, you know I would say invisible racism not aggressive racism uh, but the racism that is like in like uh, hidden messages so basically we had, you know, breadcrumbs uh, placed on in our in front of our house when we were, you know, living there. When we just moved, we had breadcrumbs uh, placed right in front of our house uh, one in one occasion, and then, you know, a few months later, we would have like uh, dog feces placed on our uh, front porch, and um, you know, we would get like prank calls from neighbors, and then, you know, when the neighbors had uh, and keep in mind, like all of our neighbors were, uh, you know, they were all white. 
of course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of my friends growing up, too, I, I made a lot of white friends, but, you know, I wasn't able to uh, go to certain places. Like, I wouldn't be invited to pr- parties. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the kids would have parties where, you know, they would have birthday parties and all of their friends would be invited. But I wasn't invited because I was the only black kid there. So, um, and, you know, little things like that where, you know, I wouldn't be included in things in school, like, you know, activities and whatnot. So, you know, it, it was a little bit difficult growing up, you know, seeing where my place was in, in society and in the fact that, um, you know, there were, you know, neighbors that weren't, they weren't happy that, you know, there is a colored family in the neighborhood. And I feel like, you know, the racism really starts there. And keep in mind, Scott, I'm not an anti-racist no. guy. I'm more of a pro-love guy. I, I don't believe in anti-racism because I believe, you know, if you're more focused on the problem, you're only going to see more of the problem, right? So it's better to have like uh, a pro equality approach where, you know, I see everybody as equal and I'm hoping that other people see me as equal as well. But I feel like the problem is, is, you know, with these neighbors when we were growing up is that they didn't see us as one of them. They didn't Hmm. see us as, you know, um, you know, uh, another neighbor. They saw us more of an enemy or, a nuisance or we didn't belong there and you know it's it's very sad you know it, it was like that back then but in most cases it's still like that today and i think the problem is that a lot of people and a lot of i i have to say but like a lot of white people don't see you know black people as as people that they can hang out on a regular basis with and I think that we need to come to a, you know, a conclusion that, you know, maybe we have to start accepting each other and, you know, hanging around. You said, you, you said that this was very subtle, so nothing directly to your face. It's just, you know, you weren't included. Um, how are you not angry about this? Well, I am angry. I am, I am angry, Scott. I am angry because, you know, there's a lot of injustice happening in this world. And, you know, with black people, black people are very scared of, you know, white people and black people deal with a lot of mental issues. A lot of, um, I would say, uh, like they feel insecurity. Yeah. They, they, they feel, uh, anxiety and they live in, in a lot of fear and vengeance as a collective, they live in a lot of fear and vengeance. And, and I think what the media is trying to push right now is a lot of race war. Um, you know, race there, the media is not really on our side. Yeah. I have they're pushing that. the story. You know, they're pushing a narrative where, you know, they want to see a lot of, you know, black versus white, uh, black vengeance. And I'm not saying that, Black Lives Matter is a is a bad movement. I think it's a great movement. I think that the awareness is a great thing, but I don't want to see 
you know, I don't want to see a world where, and I don't want to bring kids up in a world where, you know, black people are uh, angry against white people and white people are, you know, are like, they have this white guilt, you know, and white people shouldn't have white guilt and black people shouldn't be, you know, angry against uh, white people. I think we should, you know, come to, a conclusion and, and, uh, you know, try to find, you know, peace and, you know, love within, in, you know, our differences. Right. So. Um, what, what are white people not seeing? You know, and when I was talking to you uh, before the weekend, we were talking about white privilege and I told you what my, what I thought it was and you told me what you thought it was, but uh, what are white people not seeing? Because again, white privilege to me is we're all supposed to be equal. Uh, we're all supposed to have the same chance. We're all supposed to have the same opportunity. Uh, you can do what I do to get to where you need to be. Um, but yet that doesn't happen. I, I don't think that white people are any more privileged. I just think they have equal rights. The problem is that black people don't have that privilege or that mm. equality. And maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit, how, you know, it's not a case of who has more, who has less. It's a case of someone not getting the same opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, white privilege lies in, in opportunity, and it lies within um, the fact that, you know, a lot of white people do have a... Uh, you know, they have the advantage of having a cottage. And, you know, I've not seen a black person with a cottage. I've not hmm. seen uh, a lot of black people in various workplaces. I've seen a lot of workplaces, as a matter of fact, where, you know, 80, 90% of the staff are white or another culture. And there's very few black people in there. And, I think what's going on is not only the media influences, the entertainment, Hollywood influences, but the fact that we've been programmed to, you know, have a belief that, you know, black people are in this very small niche where, you know, we only fit into categories such as music or entertainment or sports, and we can't have the normal of normal lifestyle. Um, and I think white privilege, what white privilege is, is, you know, we see white people first and we don't see, you know, black people as, you know, having the same opportunities in, in, you know, living the same kind of lifestyles as a white person or having this, the things that white people have. So, White privilege is more so, you know, it's a lifestyle where you'll have white people and they'll accept their white friends at a bar where, or in, you know, you can't really see too many black people and white people having like a group, right? you know, session, right? So a lot of white people do have their white circles of friends and they probably won't allow more than two or three black people into their group. So I think there's, there's little things, subtle things, you know, even in the workplaces where, you know, there's workplaces, especially in workplaces where, you know, the interviewee will 
choose much more white employees than they would ever choose black employees. They, they, they would have 90% of their staff is going to be white. And a lot of the management have the mindset where they want to keep a lot of their staff members white. So that's where the white privilege really is, is, you know, the opportunities. Yeah. Giving, you know, um, you know, keeping the opportunities to white people and keeping the power to white people. And, you know, that's where we need to find the changes to, you know, include black people in a lot of things and, and start to, you know, help what the black people, you know, get into an understanding that they are included in a lot of these things and that they can, you know, they can get the jobs that they want and, you know, they, they can have the opportunities and live the lifestyle that a white people, white people live. So I think that's, you know, it's really just a mindset thing, but there is, you know, that, you know, white, there is like a, a white privilege thing going on, but it, it can be changed over time. Um, we've heard in, in many black families that at a certain age, the parents will have a talk to the child, girl or boy, about growing up black. Can you shed some light on that discussion? So, basically, when a kid is, you know, being educated about, you know, how black people grew up, I think they need to realize that, you know, black people have come up with a lot of struggles and and what, you know, children need to understand is that they need to accept other children. Um, they need to accept other people as, you know, humans, and they need to see love in other people and other humans. So, you know, when parents are having discussions with their children, I think it's important that they incorporate a lot of education based on, you know, having unity and accepting other children and accepting other races and cultures um, as as a, a one, as, as a whole, and, and not, you know, saying that... Uh, you know, this culture is bad or that culture is bad. Were you told, though, as a little kid, Jesse, that, you know, you're black, so you're going to face some difficulty in life, and here's how you have to handle it. Did did your parents have that discussion with you? Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know what, my my father, um, he he dealt with a lot of racism, and um, my father did, he was an engineer, and he worked in the engineering sector of uh, Apple at the time. So he was dealing with a lot of racism himself in terms of, uh, you know, his, uh, his employers, he was a contractor at the time and his employers, you know, weren't very fair to him. So the education that he would tell me is, you know, you had to stay away from certain kids if they were treating you, mistreating you and stuff. And, you know, you had to defend yourself you know, if if uh, you know if a kid says so- something to you, just kick him. That's what he told me. Is he mm. told me to kick a kid if if uh, you know a kid came up to me with a racial slur or something. He told me to you know physically defend myself. And you know, growing up, I did have a lot of the neighbors and a lot of the 
neighbor's children coming after me, you know, and they, they did, you know, say racial slurs to me. You know, they would say bad things, like make up names about me. Like uh, one kid told me, uh, I don't know, he, he told me I was like toilet paper uh, wipe. He, he kept telling me I was a toilet paper wipe. And it was you know, a white kid, you know, and, and they, were, they were telling me all these nasty things. And I think that the kid, the kid's parents weren't very educated and didn't really, you know, teach the kids that, you know, you shouldn't be telling other yeah. kids of, of other cultures, you know, these kind of things. So, you know, my, my father and my mother were very protective and they always told me defensive techniques and strategies on how to deal with, you know, white kids if they were, you know, being bad to be. But I ended up making a lot of white friends and at the end of the day, and I still have a lot of white friends. Um, some of my best friends are white. And the moral of the story is I just wish, I, I just hope that, you know, that the white people that are listening to this, you know, they can incorporate more black people into their, into their circles, into their life. Because at the end of the day, the only thing it, it's going to do, it's going it's to make your life better. You know, some of the strongest relationships I built were with other cultures and with other races. And I don't see the difference between a black person, a white person, an Asian person, an Indian person. I only see bad people, white people growing up. And, you know, now as an adult, I only see bad and bad and good people. And, you know, I hope that other Parents can teach their kids that, you know, black people aren't that bad. Black people aren't bad, especially if, you know, especially white parents. I hope that they could tell their children that white or that uh, black people are not that bad, you know, but mm. and you know, I hope we could find, you know, the solution there. Uh, obviously, we've been talking a lot lately about uh, NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace and what has happened with uh, his scenario and such and, and, and how he has rallied around uh, the movement. And this started with a, a story of a noose in his garage. It turned out it wasn't directed at him. It had been there the year before. But at the end of the day, there's still a garage in Alabama at a racetrack where the rope to pull down the door is still a noose. And there's no... Way to look at this and say it isn't that. Uh, although some people feel vindicated because it wasn't a planned uh, hate crime. Can you explain uh, how you feel when you see a noose or a Confederate flag? Well, Scott, when I see a noose or a Confederate flag from somebody um, that is, of course, of a white oh, a white person, I feel like they. Deep down inside, well, not deep down inside, but they do are, are kind of a hateful person uh, to begin with. And I feel like that hatred that they have towards another person of another race, like, the, you know, of course, of this race car driver, I feel like they do it because they, they're doing it out of jealousy and hate mixed up into two. And this race car driver, he was extremely talented, you know, and, and because he's winning, you know, a lot of white people don't want to see that. Well, he's getting attention, that's for sure, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's getting a lot of, of attention, 
you know, he's getting getting a lot of uh, publicity, and you know, a lot of the media and the news channels are focused on him. And yeah. you know, because he's winning, you know, a lot of white people don't like that. But my opinion on the Confederate flag and you know uh, the noose, of course, is I think it's those two things are symbols of hatred and you know, um, basically, uh, well, pure hatred in the hatred is towards the other culture and towards black people. Um, the Confederate flag wasn't, as I believe in my history, uh, I don't think it, it became a racist symbol over time. Mm-hmm. I'd have to do my research on that again, but I'm pretty sure that it became a racist symbol. I know that the noose was always a, a racist symbol. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as long as people are showing that, they just want to show that they, they don't like somebody and they, they hate that person. And I feel like if we want to progress as a human race, we need to get rid of those symbols as soon as possible. And we need to, you know, stop, you know, spreading this hate that we have for each other because, you know, we're not going to win, you know, if we're spreading hate like that, right? Uh, Jesse, we only got about a minute left here. I just want to ask you, what do you want white people to take from all of this? You know, they, this all obviously has all been thrown into the, the, the news again with the tragic death of George Floyd. Uh, what do you want white people to take from this experience? When you see a black person and when you see black men, I don't want you to fear them. I want you to feel love for them because... We are humans, too, and we aren't the stereotype that you see on media. We're actually very intelligent, loving, and accepting people. We, you know, we want to feel accepted just as much as as anybody else. And if you can accept us, you know, if you can accept us and we can be friends with you, I believe that you're going to live a great life. And, you know, you're going to receive great things uh, from the universe because I'm a very spiritual person. I feel like, you know, if you, you know, are accepting of black people and especially black men, black women, you know, you're going to live a great life because, you know, we just want to be accepted. And and when we could find, you know, the gap and we could fill the gap, I think that we're going to I'd be way better off as a human race. Um, and um, if you want to visit my website, I have a new website coming up. It's called culturebuddies.com, and it's focused on building relationships between cultures. And um, we're going to be working with workplaces and helping workplaces, you know, bring more culture, diversity into, uh, you know, the workplace basically so so that's culturebuddies.com 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 that's the website uh we're going to be launching next week um but we uh do focus on helping workplaces understand diversity more and i'm really passionate about this uh message because i really want to see a change i really want to see more black people um included in workplaces and, and definitely you know um Unity. I want to see a lot of unity in the future. So hmm. I'm working on that, and hopefully we can come to that conclusion. So working on that right now, Scott. 
All right, Jesse Wolf has been with us, and look for the website coming soon, culturebuddies.com. That's culturebuddies.com. Jesse, thanks so much for sharing the stories. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Some of the fallout of COVID-19, and this has affected everybody, every business, every walk of life, everything and everyone uh, has somehow been affected by uh, this pandemic, including those who were just awaiting uh, surgery prior to all of this going on, whether it was uh, cancer surgery or hip or knee replacement or, or, or some sort of elective surgery. Uh, all of that delayed as everybody got ready for uh, the pandemic. Now services and surgeries have started to resume this week at local hospitals. Sharon Murphy is with us. She's a patient who spent the past three months waiting for her new knee replacement, uh, had been er, had been scheduled to uh, have this back in May, and then all of a sudden uh, the pandemic. Let's bring in Sharon Murphy now. She is a patient. Sharon, thanks for the time. hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. I'm doing okay. So where are you now? Have you had the surgery or not? Yes, I did have the surgery two weeks ago. So let's go back to the very beginning and how this was scheduled and then what happened. Um, So my first uh, surgical date was March 27th. And on March 16th, I got a phone call from my surgeon to say that all surgical procedures had been postponed until further notice. Um, So... On and just watching the news and, and seeing the headlines that you know the eventually essential or uh, non-essential surgeries would be starting to resume. No, no confirmed date yet. Just kept watching the media, watching the media, and keeping in contact with my 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 surgeon's office. Um, it was on June the second that I got a phone call that they had uh, an opening for me. The original date was June the fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I couldn't do it two days <laughs> going in, um, yeah. so then they moved it to June the 11th. So how did you feel from the time that you were scheduled to go in and everything prior to COVID-19, and then once it hit? Uh, anxiety? Was it relief? Did How did you feel about delaying this? Well, when I when I got the cancellation, it was, it was, I was distraught. Yeah. Um, just there's so I was I was physically and emotionally ready for this surgery. Yeah. Um, you know I would I was doing uh, uh, physiotherapy visits for strength building, uh, which ha- which helps post surgery. Um, and I I bought uh, some equipment that I needed for the surg- for post surgery uh, for physiotherapy. Um, so and then you know getting meals prepared and and I I have aging parents so I wanted to make sure they were all lined up with the care and then my work needed to be. Uh, all lined up, all my clients needed to be notified, So, it, I, and everything was in place. And then to get the notification that it was, I was canceled, it was, it was distraught, yeah. And it, you just, you know, physically, I was ready for this. It was, yeah. it was time for me. Yeah, to you psych yourself up, yeah. Yes, yeah, it was ready. Um, so now, um, you know, now we have the pandemic, um, and we are all working from home. And we continue to, to do our work to the best of our ability. And then all of a sudden you get a phone call that surgeries are now starting again. So, you know, <clears throat> um, St. Joseph's has been wonderful in communicating with their patients. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was, it was time. It, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that I had it done. I'm still in a great deal of pain. And I still just started my physio about a week ago. So we're, we're on the road to recovery. Now, any issues with the physio with COVID-19? 
No, so it worked out, it actually worked out really well. So once the surgery started to resume, so did chiropractic services and physiotherapy resume. So they were, the tandem of it was fabulous. So it allowed, you know, once, once I got my date, I was able to book my physiotherapy appointments right away. And were you fearful at all re-entering the hospital? You know, we'd heard stories that some people didn't want to go in and even, you know, if it meant an emergency visit or such because, you know, fearful of going in and, and catching uh, COVID-19. Were you fearful at all at re-entering the hospital? No, I, I actually, I felt very much the opposite. I felt that the hospital setting was probably the safest place to be, um, just from all the, 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 the cleanliness practices that they have to adhere to. Um, and then some, um, you know, entering St. Joseph's, uh, you know, you are by yourself. There are no visitors um, yeah. for day surgery or, or, or extended stay surgery. Um, and, you know, the care that you're given right from the onset, you know, you, you're provided with protect, protective gear. As soon as you walk in, they take your temperature and then you're sent over to day surgery, which is where I was admitted to. And, uh, you know, very much practicing that social distancing of, of, of two meters and then, you know, having uh, masks on at all times uh, for pre-surgery, uh, not during surgery. I did not have a mask on, but post-surgery, I did have a mask back on. And, and, and you know, the caregivers, they're taking a risk. They are taking a great risk. They don't know what I have, and I don't know what they have. Hmm. Um, but um, they, it was exceptional. I, I felt very ill at ease, and I was only supposed to be there for a day, and I ended up staying four days. I didn't come home till Sunday night. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was problems with my meds, but, um, now that they got that all sorted, I felt very safe the entire time I was there. Now, did the hospital itself, how was that experience different than, uh, perhaps another hospital visit? Could you tell, I, I, I've had family members that have been through a similar experience to what you were saying It's literally you drop them off and then they're taken in by, yes. by other people. How was that part of it different? Um, it's, 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 it's very different because you're, you, you do you do realize that you're by yourself. Um, but the team at St. Joseph um, made you feel very uh, warm, very welcome. Um, I never felt alone, let me put it that way. Um, and what, uh, what I've been asked of before, too, is, you know, when you're, when you're going into the hospital, it is a lot quieter right now because they're, until today now, I think they're allowing yeah. visitors, but there are no visitors in the building. Mm-hmm. It is, it is specifically staff and patients. And so, how so, are you feeling? How are you feeling today? Two weeks out, uh, is everything as normal as can be uh, for someone who's had this type of surgery? No, I'm in. I'm in a great deal of pain. Yeah. Very, very painful surgery. Very, very painful recovery. Let me put it that way. Yeah, and that's um, typical of this type of knee surgery replacement. Yes. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a painful There's, operation. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they, the procedure went very well, according to my yeah. surgeon, and they're pleased, but the, the recovery just, just takes a lot of time, you just, yeah. and, you have to, and you have to push it yourself, because there's a lot yeah. of therapy you do at home and then in office. Yeah, the physio is the key part there, isn't it? It is. So sure. with the stage that you're, you are at now and getting to the end of your treatment, you don't see any sort of obstacles there because of any of this? Not at all. Um, you know, <clears throat> yeah, I still have to, I have to go back to the hospital for a post uh, operative uh, visit with my with my surgeon, um, and I've been to my doctor's office already to to have my 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 uh, sutures removed. Just to this morning, I had that done. So yeah, there's been and and still all the protective uh, placements are are there. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's, 
you, you feel so how long before how long before you're dancing again Sharon <laughs> <laughs> they're telling me three months minimum yeah um, until it's it's fully recovered uh, it just depend on on how this goes all right. Well, good luck to you, Sharon. And again, uh, you know, it's that painful physio, unfortunately, that takes you forward and things like this. So you've still got some work to do ahead of you, but glad that uh, finally the surgery is done and you can move forward with all of this. Sharon Murphy has been with us, a patient who recently had a uh, knee replacement. Sharon, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. You too. All right, let's bring in Dr. Anthony Adili, Chief of Surgery, St. Joseph's Healthcare Hospital, one of the clinicians from within St. Joe's, uh, and talking about uh, slowly things getting back to normal. Doctor, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. I hope you're well. Very good, Dr. Mr. Thompson. Thank you for having me on today. So I guess the first question is, is how big is the backlog? Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody's been on hold for uh, a period of time. Uh, How are you coping with the backlog here? Well, the backlog is going to be a challenge, and uh, we always had a little bit of a backlog in our healthcare system. We have wait lists, and we try to prioritize uh, people based on the urgency of their surgeries. The fact that we've been kind of uh, significantly reduced in our uh, surgical services for about 13 to 14 weeks has just made those backlogs a little bit worse. So what can you do? What can't you do? Are things slowly moving back to normal, or are they back to normal? So, no, definitely not back to normal, Um, and that whole definition of what is normal is going to be new (laughs) post the pandemic here. Um, It won't be business as usual. We have a whole host of other uh, variables that we didn't have to consider before, like physical distancing and how that affects our flow and all that kind of stuff. So um, it will be a new normal. Um, we're uh, working very hard uh, trying to think outside the box of how we could increase our capacity and do things maybe different than we did before to see if we can chip away at the backlog and try to catch ourselves back up. Uh, As far as, as you said, the new normal, who knows what that is moving forward, but how much more of a challenge is it for you or your staff and, and the people that help you to do a typical surgery, say like a knee replacement, is how has it changed from uh, pre-COVID-19 to post-COVID-19? How much of an extra challenge does that add to the staff? So if, if you look at the phases or like uh, the patient journey, um, it's definitely different assessing your patients now because they're coming into a clinic and we're all wearing masks and all the scheduling is being different and everybody has to be physically distanced in the clinic and in the waiting room. So that component of the assessment is different and that's been a bit of a challenge because we're not seeing as many patients as we were previously. Um, When you get to the OR, when you come in, like for example, the day of surgery, you're screened at the door uh, and you're given a mask and you come through the hospital. Um, and once you get into the, the day surgery unit where that's where we prepare you for surgery and then we bring you down to the operating room, do the surgery, bring you back to the recovery room and then back up to the, to the, uh, the ward bed, um, that's pretty much actually that process is still intact um, and functioning fine. The only thing is, is you'll notice there's less people in the hospital um, because of uh, reduced schedules, and, and we're starting to reintroduce visitors, but up until now there's been no visitors, so less people in the office, hospital, so it looks like there's less going on you know, than, than normally. 
And then after you go home, you know, it's regular um, uh, care afterwards. The physiotherapy clinics are starting to open up, but then again, you'll notice changes in how the physiotherapy clinics are running, again, because it's the, the new norm. And when you come back in to see your, your physician, or your family physician, or your surgeon, there's a new norm in how those clinics are running. So, so there are different, definite changes, but the actual episode of care right in the operating room, actually we've worked out um, strategies to optimize that flow so there's very little difference now than there was uh, pre-COVID. Are you finding that some patients are reluctant to go to hospital because of the fear that they could catch something? You know, initially we we've seen more of that and rightly so, you know, people are anxious and, you know, that's where sick people go to the hospital. So the last thing you want to be is going where the, where the sick people are going. Um, but I think now that people are a little bit more accustomed to the reality of COVID, um, the hospital, I think is a very safe place to be. There's screening of staff and patients, uh, um, as they come through the door, you're limited access to the to the hospital, so you're well controlled who comes in and out of the hospital. Uh, hand washing is at its all time all time high, and we're very strict in, in ensuring compliance with that. Everybody gets a mask when they come in. Everybody's instructed about physical distancing, and and where the volume of patients coming through, for example, through your outpatient clinics and, and day surgery units. We've scheduled this to maintain physical distancing, to adhere to all those principles. So I think people are, are they think that when the ones that come to the hospital see that, man, this is actually not bad at all. I, 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 I hope they feel safe. Certainly as chief of surgery, I'm comfortable to offer surgical services and medical services because I think we've done great things to make sure patients and staff stay safe during this time. Um, but I do think there is a small percentage and understandably that are going to be understandably anxious and we try to address those uh, you know, uh, as, as they come up. Um, but I think people are getting a little bit more accustomed to the new reality. Um, uh, you were talking about visitors now slowly being reintroduced into this uh, protocol. How will that uh, change what's going on uh, and, and advice to visitors or people that will or, or want to come in to see uh, family members that may be in hospital? You know, it's a great question, and, and we understand that you know visitors are critically important part of, of the care that we offer to our patients and, and helping, you know, on, on all aspects of their episode of care, especially through the hospital. So I think it's, it's vital that we introduce visitors. I think we're limiting the amount of visitors that come because we can't have gaggles in the room anymore because we've got to adhere to all these new principles. Um, so there's going to be some limitation on the number of visitors that come through. Um, there's certain areas where um, it's like everything else because it's a new reality, you just don't know how it's going to impact us 100%. So we're doing this in a slow, measured way. Um, we'll test the waters by, okay, we'll allow a few more visitors and see where the bottlenecks. Is it in the, is it in the foyer? Is it in the hallways? Is it up in the, in the cafeteria? And then if we test and it looks good, then we'll open it up a little bit more. And again, closely monitor things to see, you know, where the bottlenecks could potentially be and let things hit steady state. So I think I think the the messaging is that it's it's safe. We're doing things in a in a very measured um, uh, and uh, uh, slow, uh, not so much slow, but measured and, and rational way um, to make sure that everybody's safe while we introduce the visitors back into the hospital.
You were talking about the backlog. How long will that take to to slowly move its way through? Obviously, you're prioritizing, you know, what surgeries are are, are more important and and you know uh, what, what are more serious than others. But how long do you think it's going to take you to get through this? Yeah, you know, there's there's really no short answer to that. There's so many variables that are coming to play. I think um, we've worked very diligently in maintaining urgent and semi-urgent services throughout all of the pandemic. So there isn't a significant backlog in our cancer cases. There's not a significant backlog in uh, urgent and semi-urgent cases that we've always done. So I'm, I'm happy that we've been able to respond and maintain that level of service. There is a, a little bit of a surge that we may see in, in a few months as CTs and biopsies and endoscopies and colonoscopies come back online. Those are our screening processes, so we may see a little bit of an uptick in our, in our cancer diagnosis. Um, we're ready to respond to that by providing the extra necessary resource to manage that uptick so that we are, our cancer and our semi-urgent patients don't uh, suffer any bad outcomes because they have to wait. So we'll compensate for that. So we'll, we'll, we'll be very sensitive to any of those changes. So I think um, even though we're not up to 100% surgery, um, I think almost 100% of our critical cases that are time-sensitive, such as cancer and our semi-urgents, I think we're at 100% there. We've maintained that at 100%. So I think we're good in that regard. The areas that we're really, really going to have to, you know, um, put our thinking caps on are the, the elective stuff like bariatric surgery, joint replacement surgery, ear, nose, and throat surgery, uh, plastic surgery, all the stuff that we had huge volumes of that uh, surgeries that have significant impact on people's quality of life, those are the ones that we're going to have backlogs that we're going to have to really think outside the box. And uh, we're reviewing various models right now to see if we can increase the amount of activity due to try and chip away at that. How successful we are, there's so many variables at play here. How many beds we have available um, at any given time. We have to maintain 10% capacity for uh, a potential surge of COVID in our community. So that affects how much uh, bed and resources we have available in the hospital. And even staffing, for example, nursing and anesthesia and surgeons, it's a finite pool. And you, you know, you can only go to that pool so often before you start to drain or tire that pool as well. So that limits our abilities to uh, open quotes, turn up the volume, close quotes of, of the of the healthcare system to try and address the backlog. So I, I don't. I think it's going to be very difficult to prognosticate exactly when we could get this backlog um, caught up. I do think safely it'll be probably. I'm going to say hazard a guess. 12-plus months at least mm. um, to, to, to address the backlog in those elective-type cases. Dr. An- uh, Dr. Anthony Adili has been with us, Chief of Surgery, St. Joseph's Healthcare Hospital, talking about slowly, slowly bringing the hospital back to normal and uh, doing surgeries that have been and procedures that have been postponed due to COVID-19. Anthony, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. And thanks for so, uh, thanks so much uh, to you and your staff for all you're doing for the people of Hamilton. Thanks so much. My pleasure, and thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.